Hello, I'm Victoria. And I'm Johnny. Welcome to Tasty Pages. A podcast for people who love cookbooks, food, and cooking. Each week, we'll discuss a featured cookbook from our popular Cooking the Books Instagram page. We'll also discuss the dishes that we made and rank the book in a variety of categories. Including food photography and styling, degree of difficulty, and of course, taste. The conversation is always unscripted, unedited, and uncensored. Spoiler alert, Victoria likes to swear. (laughs) All of this takes place in our living room in the heart of Minneapolis. Oh yeah, we also have a featured show topic with contributions from our listeners, and we end each episode with a lame food-related joke. Usually very lame. Hey now. (laughs) Join Join us for for Tasty Tasty Pages. Twin Cities friends, join us at Cooks of Crocus Hill, St. Paul location on November 28th for gluten-free fall flavors. It's that cozy time of year when cravings are calling to roasted vegetables and fall spices, to name a few. Join us for the fall flavor tour and explore why these eternal flavors are so wonderful. What's on the menu for that day, Victoria? There will be a grilled salmon with a miso tahini sauce, roasted spiced carrots with feta and sesame, and fall vegetable soup. That sounds delicious. How can people register if they'd like to join us? All they have to do is go to cooksofcrocushill.com and click on cooking classes. Again, this class takes place on Monday, November 28th. I think you'll be hungry after Thanksgiving by that time. Indeed. And it'll be from 6 to 8.30 p.m. We'd love to see you there. This week's featured cookbook is... Eat What You Love by Danielle Walker. Hi, Johnny. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> Maybe I want to eat what I hate. <laughs> we, I think we've been doing a lot of books lately that are like, cook what you want, eat what you love, make what you have, that kind of thing. <laughs> the... Seems to be a popular topic. <laughs> Telling you what to do. Bossy cookbooks. Bossy cookbooks. All right. Welcome to episode 85 of Tasty Pages, a podcast from Cooking the Books. If you go to our website, which is wecookbooks.com, and click on that store tab, that will direct you to our Amazon.com affiliate page. And from there, you can click any number of uh, little categories we got there. And if you make a purchase from any of them, it won't cost you anything more. We'll get a little affiliate kickback in return. And it's the best, most immediate way that you can support what we're doing here. We'll be swimming in pennies. Yes. We will also accept rare bourbons, truffles, or celebrity autographs. Eh, I'm kind of eh on the truffles. And the celebrity autographs? Yeah. Is there any celebrity autograph that uh, you're you're hoping to get? No. Did you ever have any when you were growing up? Olivia Newton-John. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, I think you've told that story before, but it's, it's it's a good one. Basically, in short, I loved Olivia Newton-John so much that I wrote her a fan letter and I sent her $5 because I loved her that much. Oh. And her, the fan club people or whatever sent me back a nice little letter with a couple of autographed photos and they returned my $5. Olivia Newton-John probably never saw the letter or the $5. Probably it probably went not. to a P.O. box in Toledo 
And like some super fan that was running the club was like, oh, aren't you sweet? And they just like returned, returned to sender. Well, and I was, I was super young too. So my handwriting probably looked like serial killer, (laughs) like chicken, (laughs) chicken scratch, serial killer handwriting. Well, that was probably the bulk of her fan base were serial (laughs) killers and young teenage or like young, young girls. Or horny guys. You know, that whole let's get physical thing. Men. And it's funny because I really never, ever clocked what that song was about. It's probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. I think I was a little bit too young to understand. Ah, we got, we, we got an exciting, fun-filled show ahead. I mean, I, I, I could say that about every episode, but this one, I think, is this is the one, right? Oh, you think so? Yeah. Okay. I mean, Halloween is in the air. Yes. Um, we've been watching horror movies, as is our custom in October. So far, I think my favorite thing has been the, um, it's based on the R.L. Stein books, and it's Fright Street, and it's three different movies. It's called Fear Street. Fear Street. Yeah. <laughs> it's a trilogy. Um, the first one takes place in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, the second one goes back. 1978. 1978. God, you've got all the notes. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm just doing this all from my memory. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's the kind of professionalism that I expect from this uh, production, right. this podcast. And then the third one Actually, is... Actually, I had our uh, our research team behind the scenes like compile all these notes. Oh, you mean you? Yeah. <laughs> and then the third one is set in 1666. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I had some really disturbing nightmares last night. Yeah, depending on the flavor of horror movie that you prefer some of some of the stuff in these is a little too slashery for my taste but it's kind of paying homage 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 (laughs) homage 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 to that genre so i was willing to like overlook a little bit of it because uh you know it's it's a popular genre. Yeah. Not it's just generally not my jam. Well, and it was it, a little bit supernaturally too, yes. which is my preferred. Give me give me all the ghosts every day and I yes. And it had uh lesbian witches, which is my preferred genre <laughs> of horror. So, I mean, all the bases were covered. It was it was great. Um but yeah, highly recommended on Netflix. And uh let's see. Oh, it's a Monday, so that means no, uh, we're teetotaling. Yep. So what are, you, what are you drinking over there? Oh, I'm drinking a fruit punch flavored Gatorade Zero. I'm I'm drinking uh, Monster Energy Zero Sugar Ultra Gold. Unleash the Ultra Beast is what it says. All these uh, energy drinks are always so aggressive. Wait, like, you didn't get a liquid death? No, I, I told you I got the last one. I saved it for you. Oh, you love me. Because you're my lady. <laughs> so I'm, I'm drinking the, the inferior Monster Energy Zero Sugar. Well, liquid death is just like a fizzy water, but it murders your thirst. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. All these, all these energy drinks are so like aggressive in their, uh, in their advertising and everything. Like, drink this fucking energy drink, or I'll you, punch you in the face. You actually cuss. I you, did. You never cuss. Up. I figured you're doing it all the time. I might as well just, uh, just give it up. My trash mouth. Yep. I have to check that explicit box every time when we publish the episode. So if you can't beat them, join them. Right. That's what I feel. There you go. Anything else you want to discuss? We're going to do we're going to dive deep into some Halloween stuff in a bit. Oh, anything else on the discussion agenda? Well, we just finished up 
the vegan Chinese kitchen by Hannah Che. That was good. And tonight we are starting uh, Mezcla by Ixta Belfridge, who is from the wonderful Otolenghi team. Mm-hmm. And for dinner, we are having crispy oyster mushroom skewers with crushed chickpeas. Delicious. Mm. It's going to be great. Sh- I'm sure it will be. Yes. Well, should we dive into our show question? Sure. Okay, this is a good one. And in keeping with the Halloween theme, least favorite candy. All right. For for Halloween. And we got some good answers. I will just preface this by saying overwhelmingly uh-huh. uh circus peanuts and candy corn yes. were the were the big losers. So uh we'll just get that out of the way. But then we got some other interesting answers. So uh without further ado, take it away, Victoria. Do you want me to read the, you can, you can the read candy the, corn ones? Yeah, sure. Okay. Mikey B said, circus peanuts equals Satan's candy. Agreed. Mm-hmm. And you know what I find odd is they're banana flavored. Why would you make a peanut shaped candy banana flavored? An artificial banana of all things. Is the worst. It's, well, and the thing is they're, they're not wrapped, are they? Probably like, not. I remember them not being wrapped. Although yeah, th- maybe they have new regulations. I think like, they just come in a big tub. Gross. Yeah. Uh, Tim M. said, candy corn's pretty awful. It's just little colored sugar bombs Ugh. when you get down to it. Uh, side note, invented in the 1880s by George Renninger of the Wonderly Candy Company in Philadelphia. It's the oldest candy still in production. Hmm. Candy corn. Well, it's funny because now they have like all these different flavors. You know why? Because the manufacturer's uh, Jelly Belly. Oh, really? Yeah. So they they probably, uh, candy corn and jelly beans are probably just the same mixture and they just scoop them out of the tub and put them in different molds and different flavors. Nah. You don't think? No. Okay. But maybe I should, ooh, maybe I should try like a caramel apple flavor because Jelly Belly is really good with their flavors. So maybe I should. Then how uh, come they can't do anything about the candy corn? <laughs> well, maybe. It's just kind of sugar. Maybe they have. Who knows? I mean, I haven't willfully eaten candy corn since I was a kid. Yeah. And I'm sure Jelly Belly didn't own it back then. I think it was like Brock's or some bullshit like that. Well, you know, the rumor is that they only made one batch of candy corn and then they just <laughs> dig it out of the trash every year and so recycle gross. it. <laughs> so, uh, what else you got? Uh, let's see. Meg C said salty black licorice, which I think is more of a like Scandinavian thing. Sure. I can't say that I've ever had I've it, never but had I don't it. like black licorice, Mm-mm. so I don't think adding salt to it will change that. No. Uh, Philip W said, I actually like that. What I don't like are banana flavored runts. <laughs> so again with the banana. Artificial banana is like one of the worst. It really is. Fake flavors. Well, and it doesn't even taste like banana. It just tastes like straight up chemicals. Yeah. I say as I'm drinking a Gatorade. <laughs> and, and my monster drink. <laughs> Talk about straight up chemicals. <laughs> I'm just very selective. My stomach's going to glow in the dark later on. <laughs> I'm very selective about what, what artificial chemicals it's, I'll it's, put in it's, my body. It's a good party trick. <laughs> okay, we could skip the other vote for Circus Peanuts. Uh, give me meatloaf said milky way Ooh, gauntlet throne yeah i, I mean i'm okay with milky ways personally oh at shelly kvd said licorice but which kind black red right green apple no one eats green oh. apple licorice maybe they do i don't know uh, <laughs> what else you got uh maxwell gregory 2018 said skittles okay <gasps> what 
I used to fuck with Skittles back Skittles in the day. Skittles are delicious, especially yeah. the sour ones. Mm. Mm. At Dixie Dog Mama said Raisinets. Do you like Raisinets? Well, it reminds me of movie theaters. For, for yeah, for nostalgia's sake, I think like if you covered like raisins don't really bum me out. I know that raisins are a bummer for a lot of people. Uh-huh. I think if you covered some raisins in quality chocolate rather than that like yeah. waxy bullshit that they put on them. So you're going you're gonna to make your own uh, bespoke raisinettes? No, oh. I don't like them that much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't care that much. And uh, at life is what you bake it. And uh, in addition to the aforementioned candy corn and circus peanuts, she added good and plenty to that list. Good and plenty are the licorice flavored yes. ones. Okay, yeah. So it's kind of like the gross candy trifecta. Yes. Um, what'd you have for your list? Um, well, of course, black licorice and candy corn. Yep. And then the salted nut roll. Oh, you don't like those? Oh, the nougat grosses me out. Oh, that was my jam back in the Ugh. day. Ugh. That was my candy bar of choice. I think nougat is disgusting. And the huh. fact that they sell like little squares of nougat that have like fruit and nuts in them just... I mean, I get some people like nougat, but it's not one of my favorites. Okay. Um, And then Smarties and Necco wafers. You know what some kids do with Smarties? They crunch them up and snort them. Kids, of course. They're just practicing for later in life when they move on to... Cocaine and Adderall. Anything else? Uh, No. What did you have? Uh, Black licorice. Uh Peeps. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, circus peanuts, candy corn. That's a given. Uh, Jolly Ranchers, probably invented by a dentist. You think? <laughs> they taste really good, but yeah, I mean, you can do some serious damage. Yep. Tootsie Rolls. I know you like them, but they're, they're kind of like the RC Cola of candy. What? Yeah, I'm not a fan of Tootsie Rolls. Vaguely chocolate, but not really. I just, I, 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 I can't, can't do the Tootsie okay, Rolls. Okay, I want a divorce. They, <laughs> <laughs> they give them away at the gym and I just pass on them. I'm just like, yeah, pass. Yep. I'm good without a free Tootsie Roll. But you take the grape ones. Yeah, the grape ones are good. Yeah. At our gym, they have two little bowls out, one of Tootsie Rolls. I mean, you know you're at the right gym when they're giving away candy. Well, at our old gym, they would have like... Donuts. Donuts and bagels and, and pizza. pizza. <laughs> if you went there at night, I think there was one night, like a Tuesday, when they'd have like pizza night. That just cracks me I up. Know. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations! Put on all the how calories do, how do you, you lure just worked out. into the gym. Give away pizza and donuts, <laughs> then they'll go. Uh, yeah, Tootsie Rolls. Should we talk about this book? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So this one comes out uh, in 2018. We just received a copy recently. We had a copy of Daniel's previous book, Against All Grain, when we uh, briefly went paleo back in the day. That was like. Probably ten years ago or so. Yeah, when we tried. We that. did it for a long, for like kind of a long time, like nine months, something like that. Yeah. Um, even after our interest in paleo waned, we had that book on our shelf for quite some time. It had some good recipes in it. So this one kind of uh, continues in that vein with over 125 gluten and dairy-free recipes. There's also a heavy emphasis on like meal planning. And there are some uh, variations within the recipes, some of the recipes uh, that utilize like an instant pot as well as like make-ahead dinners and packable lunches. So it's it kind of leans heavily into that meal prep and, and definitely geared probably towards uh, families mm-hmm. with children. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Anything else to say about this before we jump into it? I don't think so. No. Okay. Why don't you mention what we made and then we'll discuss it in a little more detail. Okay. So we made a barbecued chicken salad with power slaw. Then we did and lots of salads here. Italian chopped salad with red wine vinaigrette. Steak salad with roasted sweet potatoes and caramelized onions. Shrimp fried rice. And cowboy cookies. All right. All right. Uh, let's talk this barbecue chicken salad with power slaw. <laughs> what do you think made the slaw power? I, I don't know. I love that uh, Stooges record, Slaw Power. It's a, it's a good one. <laughs> one of my favorites. Um, for something that seems like it would be a real simple dish, this was kind of like a dishes creator. It super was. And we made the barbecue sauce from scratch. Mm-hmm. And, and the barbecue sauce um, was made with dates so that there was no refined sugar. And then there's the usual suspects like tomato paste, vinegar, bloody I'm blah. I'm kind of picky about my barbecue sauce. I am too. And I don't like ones that are overly sweet. Mm-mm. And I feel like this one with the inclusion of the dates leaned a little too sweet for my taste. I agree. I would like something a little more like kind of smoky and mm-hmm. kind of tangy from the tomato or something. Yes. Um, See, that's why we're married. All right. We have a compatibility in the barbecue sauce department. It's the only thing that matters. <laughs> um, and then you also have to, I mean, if you really want to cheat, you can get a rotisserie chicken, but you pressure cook a chicken, Yep. which was good because we needed to make stock. So we turned right around and made some stock. Well, and also we knew we'd be making another chicken dish Mm -hmm. from this book. I think that was probably the extent of any meal planning or prep that we did. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, it worked out good for this situation. I'd say the slaw was more of like a salad, really, because it was made with kale, uh, radish, carrot, peaches, Mm -hmm. avocado, and it also called for jicama, but for some reason we couldn't find it. Usually it's not an issue. So we just left it off. Yep. It was good. There was no, a dressing that there's uh, a dressing know, involved too. using the Vitamix. So yet, it, yet more dishes. Yep. It was a oil, lemon juice, cilantro thing. So yeah, this was, it was a really high maintenance salad. Oh, we sliced some radishes using our handheld mandolin. So I mean, that was more dishes. Y- you probably could have done that by hand though. Well, I wanted you the, got the knife I skills. wanted the thrill of okay. uh, knowing if I would slice my knuckle off. <laughs> is this go- is this going to be the time that you, be. that you that you bleed to death from the mandolin? Claims its next victim. <laughs> uh, thankfully, that was not the case. I liked the salad. It was a lot of work for a fucking salad. I agree. So, and then the other challenge was we were the the barbecue sauce recipe in the book yields i think three or four cups we had a big mason jar of it in the fridge we used it for one other dish that we just finished recently from another book Mm -hmm. um that also called for making barbecue sauce from scratch and it was similar enough and i think it had some peaches or something in it so we figured like since it was kind of a sweet based barbecue sauce we just used this stuff that we already made and had on hand right but sadly the rest of it ended up getting dumped out i mean we don't use barbecue sauce that often and i mean to the author's credit she does advise you that you can freeze it for up to four months so you know we could have froze it but it it just yields a lot and that's one of the issues when we get to the rankings that i have with books like this where there's so much 
prepared, you know, condiments, sauces, things that you need to make, and then they yield so much. So you're left with this leftover, you know, what do you do with this? It's also taking up room in your fridge and all that. So yeah, then you have to, then you have to get creative when you're doing like the wrestle up lunch or whatever. Right. So, and, and, you know, sometimes it's great. Like sometimes that's, you know, great it will go with what you want to make but Mm -hmm. to have to kind of figure out something to make revolving around a sauce i think is kind of bullshit correct um anything else mm, i don't think so how about this italian chopped salad with red wine vinaigrette okay so we use the leftover chicken from that and this one was pretty easy since we had the chicken Mm -hmm. um and tomatoes were peak season when we made this um and I did like the salad because it was pretty hearty. It had salami and roasted beets. We used golden beets uh, mm-hmm. because regular beets are not our favorite. And they're also messy to yeah. work with. Yes. Um, and then it had some olives and artichoke hearts. And then I think we threw, we just tossed a couple cornichons in there just for a little bit of extra. Cuteness? Extra, well, saltiness, but sure, why not? <laughs> Um, and the vinaigrette was a really simple red wine vinegar, uh, lemon, basil, and garlic. And then after we photographed it, we tossed a little bit of fat on there. Which is admittedly dairy, but yeah. our salad, our rules. Right? We're, um, we're the ones eating it. Yep. And we had some feta in the in the fridge. So, yeah, I like this one. I, I, I love, we've done some chopped salads before that had salami in it, and I, I always enjoy those. So mm-hmm. I... This was a good one. Not nearly as many dishes as Uh the previous salad. So go us. Go us. Um, How about this steak salad with roasted sweet potatoes and caramelized onions? This was kind of like a steak and potatoes dinner. Um, And, And I will say possibly something you could prepare for someone who's very traditional in their eating habits and you know they want the meat and potatoes kind of thing for dinner right this would maybe push them gently in that direction to branch out yeah this one was a pretty easy one to make to um caramelize some onions add cubes of sweet potatoes and a little bit of balsamic vinegar and it uses a uh, flank steak mm-hmm. for the steak so um if you can't find flank steak skirt steak is fine too and that was grilled uh then it had some cherry tomatoes and a simple red wine vinegar dijon dressing yeah we were kind of leaning into the salad stuff for the first part of this book well yeah because it, it was summer yeah so and that's more of how we tend to eat and you get to talk about this next one all right shrimp fried rice this was uh, yet another dish i prepared on our famous surf and turf nights where victoria eats a gigantic steak and i do something with shrimp this one uh it says fried rice but that's used in quotation marks because it's actually cauliflower rice um, did you make it with cauliflower rice yes okay Sure, you could buy cauliflower rice at places like Trader Joe's that come prepared in a bag, but then you'd miss out on the joy of making a complete mess of your kitchen by making your own. <laughs> so who would want who would want to skip that? I know, right? So uh, I did rice some cauliflower in the food processor, and then spent the next couple weeks sweeping up little bits of riced cauliflower off the floor. Okay, so here's a question. Do you think you would have preferred it with actual rice? Yes. Okay. And that was my next thing I was going to say. 
So there's onion, garlic, ginger, carrot, peas, and scallions that all get uh, combined um, with egg before you put it in the shrimp uh, mixture in the wok with the cauliflower. I mean, it was it was fine. It was a it was a good take on a classic like takeout dish. I do remember it being kind of heavy and and feeling kind of weighed down after eating it. It was it was a lot of food, and I think that that. Well, that's your own damn fault for stuffing your face. I know. Um, But not a light meal. And and I don't think it was necessarily the quantity of it. I mean, sure, that had something to do with it. But just the shrimp with the cauliflowered rice and then all the veggies, it just it felt very heavy to me. See, that's so weird. It doesn't sound heavy at all to me at all, like especially with the cauliflower. But yeah, I mean, I, I like trying new shrimp recipes. This was admittedly not my favorite of the ones that I've tried. Uh. No one has uh, dethroned the Nick Sharma masala shrimp from his uh, flavor equation book yet. So, Oh, is your favorite shrimp recipe? Because yep, I'm kind of like, well, that's potatoes, potatoes. No, it's my, my go-to shrimp recipe. Or potatoes, tomatoes, apples, oranges. There you go. <laughs> okay, well, speaking of which, you get to talk about the next one because you this was all you, the cowboy cookies. Yes. Um, okay, and here's a fun little fact. The inspiration for this recipe originated from Family Circle magazine. Is that still around? I don't know. Hmm. Um, I always get that confused with Family Circus, which are the old cartoons with Jeffy. (laughs) Be like, who dumped this cauliflower rice all over the kitchen? Not Not me. me. (laughs) That was a classic at my grandma's house growing up. Anyway, continue. Um, So this came about in two around 2000 uh they hosted a bake-off amongst presidential candidates wives really so can i just interject here per usual sure (laughs) this seems kind of an odd inclusion or reference for a book that came out in 2018 i i don't think it's necessarily something to be kind of celebrated like there was a presidential election and they asked the uh, the wives of the candidates for their best cookie recipe and this is based on that it just seems really dated and kind of sad and the first mouth breather to contact us complaining about cancel culture gets a bucket of circus peanuts and candy corn dumped on their doorstep it's 2022 evolve or get left behind you dinosaur all right Okay. Well, I came into that conversation a little hot. Yeah, you did. Wow. (laughs) I need to do some yoga. You're spicy. (laughs) Um, So this recipe is gluten and dairy-free. The cookies were really chewy, and they had toasted coconuts, cashews, chocolate. Oh, oh, the recipe actually called for pecans, but I had cashews, and I like cashews better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chocolate, peanut butter chips, and a pinch of cinnamon. The egg is replaced by flaxseed, and then the sugars are honey and a coconut sugar. And then for the flour, this also used um, almond flour, arrowroot, and coconut flour. And did you stay pretty faithful to the recipe as far as like the method? And I actually how you did, did it? Okay. yeah. Because I know you got some little tips and tricks for cookie baking that you employ, and so I didn't know if maybe you used those or if you just stuck. Yeah, well, a lot of times I feel like the measure for measure flour, gluten free, mm-hmm. works just as fine. And, uh, and you know, and once you get like almond flour, arrowroot, and coconut flour, you're spending a lot more money. Right. But I don't know. Maybe some people can't eat that. So this is 
another grain free option. Yeah. Um, and I did like them. They were great and they freeze really well. Yep. We'll have those things for dessert. They're delicious. Or for breakfast, too. Cookies for breakfast. Absolutely. It should be noted, too, that we made some uh, garlic naan from the book a couple times. That was just kind of like a side to have with one of the dishes or two of the dishes. I remember the first attempt was a little too thick. Well, it, the recipe calls for you to like spread out the batter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't find it to be spreadable. I think we kind of had to roll it out or something. But the first attempt, it was a bit dense, kind of thick. Uh, the second attempt worked better. But the problem I have with making something like this gluten-free is that you're not going to get that kind of pillowy texture that you would associate with like naan that you'd get from like a restaurant or something. Yeah. So chemically, yeah, just because chemically it doesn't work. Yeah. And I just, I, it's, it's. It's like a poor man's... To call it non, I think it gets people's expectations up and they're probably going to be disappointed if you served that to them and didn't tell them it was gluten-free. Yeah. They'd, they'd be, just like, be like, this they, is the worst non I've ever had. They'd be like, what the fuck is up with your baking skills? Yeah. Fail. Uh, but yeah, it, it was worth noting. We didn't really include that as like its own thing when we featured this book in our feed because it was, it was just a, a... It was a little bonus that we made. But... We're always looking for good baking alternatives and bread alternatives that are gluten free. So this one was this one was worth a try. I'd probably make it again and try and fine tune it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we jump into our rankings, let's discuss the most critical Amazon reviews. I wanted to note that this book currently has over two thousand ratings at the time of this recording, with an average rating of four point seven out of five stars. So it is. Uh, overwhelmingly a pretty popular well-reviewed book of the most critical reviews and there there were many as you would expect when you've got 2000 rankings the common critiques were that it uses odd unusual expensive and or hard to source ingredients many reviewers uh critiqued it regarding the time that it is required to prepare everything mm-hmm. and then also some of the dishes are not what you would really consider healthy as far as calories. Mm-hmm. So just because something is gluten-free or paleo does not make it necessarily low in calories. Yeah, I mean, there's like corn dogs and fried chicken in yeah. there. So don't don't like expect this to be like a health cookbook. Right. Nor does I think it really professes to be. No, but it's not just, at all. It's worth noting. I'll start with the first one. Sure. Um, one out of five stars from JB. And they said, Disappointed. She has an incredible story, and I admire her mission. However, this is the second book of hers that I've purchased, and I've finally realized that it's just not for me. I work full-time, and the amount of time that goes into shopping for some of these ingredients at specialty grocery stores and then preparing them is just too unrealistic for my schedule. She does discuss a prep day to make it easier, but why would I want to spend one of my two days off making meals for the week? Also, the ingredients are expensive and hard to find. I'm better off ordering from a healthy meal prep service. Only a handful of the recipes are easy to follow and take a reasonable amount of time. They get really complicated and don't always turn out like the pictures. So it's hard to not be disappointed after spending $75 or more and two to three hours in the kitchen just making one dish. I was hoping after the first book that it would just uh, be this particular book, but the new one would be different. Not the case. Okay, there are a lot of good points in this review. I agree. Unlike this bozo, <laughs> J-W-W, 
who gave it one out of five stars. Terrible weird ingredients. I hate it. This book is a waste of trees. The ingredients she adds are extra money and nonsense. She is a disgrace to cooking. I've never hated a cookbook more. She's not a chef. She's a bored stay-at-home mom with bland cooking. Listen here, neckbeard. No need to behave like a sexist lunatic just because you didn't care for the book. This is the kind of mentality that's poisoning young minds and grooming them to be shitty adults. Right? Be better. And like, come on, you know, people have dietary restrictions. And, you know, if you don't have a dietary restriction, then, yeah, this book may not be for you. But for a lot of people, it's really useful. Well, no need to get all personal about. I know, right? You're insulting her. Listen here, JWW. Your body is likely a three and your personality is obviously a one. So stop getting (laughs) upset when a 10 that you're trying to attract says, no, thanks. It's not them. It's you. Ooh, I need to do some yoga. Wow. I'm, I'm getting all worked up over here. Okay. Yeah. Well, should we jump into our rankings? Sure. Food photography and styling. What'd you have? I gave it a 4.5. Here's the thing is that there was, it seemed like there was no central theme or like palette color. Like it jumped around from like lighter to darker and it had a variety of backdrops and textures and shades like wood, marble, linen. Aubrey Pick is the photographer. Yes. And she's got a great Instagram page. Mm. Like, you know, does a lot of work and uh, it's gorgeous. So worth checking out. Um, I will say all the crockery and pans looked very shiny and new. Yes. Like they were, have never been used before. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the photos were overhead and 45 degree angles. The food looks really delicious, which obviously is the main goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the styling, it was simple but effective. And it kind of reminded me of the way that like I will style food when we when we take photos Mm -hmm. like a lot of it was really simple you'd have your plate of food a linen maybe a glass Mm -hmm. and a utensil there's definitely kind of our aesthetic yeah there were not like large tableaus of you know all this stuff on the table Mm -hmm. 75 dishes Mm -hmm. um so yeah i i quite enjoyed it i mean some people might say it was a little bit simplistic but to me it is my aesthetic Mm -hmm. What did you give it? I gave it a five. Okay. I found the overall color palette to be kind of light, clean, and neutral. So that's odd that you thought it kind of jumped around. Yeah. Because I thought like the overarching theme was kind of like that, you know, that uh, shade. There's a fair amount of family photos in here, which is not good or bad. It's just an observation. I just noticed it. Um, so lots of stuff with her with her husband and kids. Many of the photos are kind of placed, and maybe this is more of a design thing, but they're placed along the perimeter of the text rather than the typical kind of like opposite page of the yes. recipe. I was going to note that, but yeah. I figured you would say something it's, it's about it. It's more of a design thing, but uh, I, I just made a note of it here. Uh, I also mentioned that there's a, a Lots of ceramics used in the photos and and good use of props, both utensils and linens. Um, I mentioned that it's kind of similar to our design aesthetic. If you if you look at our Instagram feed, not to compare the two, but they're they're in the same uh, in the same space. Many of the photos also feature like a spoon or fork tucked into the dish. I, I had a hard time finding fault with any of the styling or photos as they were executed by people who obviously know what they're doing 
And all the dishes look appetizing and inviting, which is what you want from yes. a cookbook. Design and layout. 3.5, my lady. Okay. <laughs> there were things that I liked and things that I hated about the design. There's a photo recipe index in the back of the book, which I thought was really clever. I don't see a lot of cookbooks do that. But since many people are accustomed to browsing thumbnails on their devices, I thought it was a nice inclusion. And I wish more cookbooks had that. Mm -hmm. So you can just see on one page kind of at a glance. Here's the title of the dish. Here's a little thumbnail. Here's the page it's on. There's a section in front of the book. That's a bit weird. So it was. It I know was, what you're. It was entitled say. "Establishing Your Support System." I think the purpose is supposed to encourage and maybe be the cheerleader for someone who's maybe newly switching to this kind of diet, but it relies on some kind of dated stereotypes to make its point. Mm-hmm. So, and it was using like gender-specific cliches such as. The stubborn meat and potatoes husband who will joke about having to eat rabbit food. Like that, I'm paraphrasing, but that's that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, The picky children who will have a meltdown if they don't get their chicken nuggets for dinner, like that kind of stuff. And it was like, you know, here's how to navigate that. And I I just felt like in this day and age, it was was a little weird to still be framing it that way. Mm Mm-hmm. One piece of advice that she does offer that I agree with is when convincing friends or family to give new dishes a try, just make the meal without putting too much emphasis on like, hey, this is gluten free. This is dairy free. Because I think that people have preconceived notions. Thank you. Um, They may interpret that as not being very delicious. But I did think that was good advice. But the the overall section, it's a couple pages just writing about. It, it was weird. I, I didn't think it was it was absolutely necessary. There is an ingredient glossary that includes substitutions, and um, that is quite necessary for a right. book like this because you're going to be working with a lot of non-traditional ingredients um, in an effort to make them grain and dairy-free. Although the author suggests planning weeknight meals accordingly based on how much time you have available... She doesn't really offer any prep or cook times in the recipe. Right. Which I thought was a little odd. Um, For a busy parent with a spouse and children to feed, much of the meal prep planning advice involves spending what little free time you might have doing shopping, prep, and planning required for the week. Perhaps this ultimately saves time and limits uh, stress during the week, but I would imagine it's going to be a tough sell for a lot of people. Each recipe does have a little code for specific allergies and intolerances. So in addition to the gluten-free, dairy-free of all the recipes, there's recipes that will mention if they're egg-free, if they're nut-free, if they are... Uh, I, I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with this term, this SCD, which stands for Specific Carbohydrate Diet... Do you know about this? I, I had no idea either. So I jumped on the, the old WebMD, oh, Jesus. <laughs> which describes it as... And a did res- you find out that you had cancer too yes, while you were at it? It's a little side note. Uh, it describes it as a restrictive grain-free diet plan designed to help people with certain conditions such as Crohn's disease, colitis, okay. celiac... 
As the name suggests, the diet allows some carbs and bans others based on how hard they are to digest. So you can have items that have uh, that are like fresh fruit, vegetables, meat without additives, and homemade yogurt, but no starches, grains, or processed or canned foods. Most support of this diet comes from testimonials. There's actually few clinical studies that show the effectiveness of the diet. More research would be needed on its safety and effectiveness. Oh, so it's a little bit woo-woo-y. A little bit. Okay. And so I, I thought it was a little odd that it was not only like mentioned, but then there was like this code applied to the foods that would yeah. like fall into this thing. Many of the recipes in the book include ingredients that are referenced elsewhere. So like you need to make homemade almond milk. You need to make a chocolate hazelnut spread. You need to make mayonnaise from scratch. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of those kind of things where it's like, oh, turn to this page for... And I think that's where the meal prep comes into play. But if you aren't doing that meal prep, which we often didn't, then you're making barbecue sauce from scratch. <laughs> a a one-hour meal turns into like a three-hour thing. Yes. Yeah. Most recipes serve four to six people. They have a decent font size. Head notes are limited to about a paragraph, so they're pretty brief. Many of the ref recipes offer packing suggestions for transporting to school, to work for lunch, that kind of thing. There's um, a total of eight chapters, and they cover all the basic things you would expect, like breakfast, lunch, snacks, sides, salads, that kind of thing. Whew, I think that's it. Okay, well, you have? I gave it a 3.5 too. That's what I had. And you pretty, and just for the sake of brevity, and I don't want to repeat everything you just said because everything that you said is in my notes. It's like I was in your head. Right? Was there anything else that you needed to add or that I didn't mention? Um, there's a section in the book that's called Snacks. Mm -hmm. And she does provide you with a list of like, different kinds of snacks that you can buy online that will fall into all these categories. I do remember reading that. Yes. Yeah. So I appreciated that. But again, most of them would be something you'd find at your local kind of health food store, maybe Whole Foods or a co-op. If you live in a smaller rural area, you're probably not going to have access to that stuff and you'd be limited to just ordering it online. Yeah. Degree of difficulty. Uh, I gave it a three. Okay. Recipes aren't difficult per se, but like you were saying before, many of them have several components. And if you haven't done meal prep, it's going to skyrocket your your uh, cooking time. Yes. And I, and, you know, and like, I feel like for a salad, there shouldn't be five different steps. It's a salad. Right. For the time that it takes, I don't think the payoff is worth it. Yeah, especially for something like a salad, like you said. Yeah. Like, you know, ultimately, yes, we enjoyed it, but was it worth the couple hours of prepping and preparing all the different components? Yeah. Mm. And I do think, you know, the substitutions could cause some confusion. And also for people who don't necessarily have dietary restrictions like if they picked up this book I feel like if yeah a lot of them would kind of be like why would I use this ingredient or you know but I mean you should know what you're going into yeah when you I would say get, to be fair it's probably yeah. not directed this at is, like a mainstream yeah this is not a book for everyone right but it does have a, a like a very important place sure so yeah I give it a three 
Okay. How about you? Uh, I also give it a three. While none of the recipes are difficult on their own, they might require advanced prep, which hardly makes any of these uh, what I would consider quick and easy and might actually discourage some from even attempting any. I do have some concerns about how well some of these were tested and whether the reader would be able to execute the dish similar to the photo in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Just from our own experience, like that garlic naan, the first time we made it, it wasn't that successful. The second time was a little better. It still didn't have the same appearance as the book photo, I didn't think. Yeah. Some of the recipes we made created a lot of dishes for what should have been a simple meal. Some of the prep in advance ingredients will likely go to waste unless you plan to use them. We mentioned the barbecue sauce. You'd also need a large or additional refrigerator and freezer um, as all of this meal prep is going to take up space. Agree. So that's the other consideration, too. Um, When we lived in our house and had a whole second refrigerator and freezer in the basement, it would be a lot easier to do this kind of meal prep and Mm -hmm. keep things on hand. But with more limited space now, this book is uh, a challenge with some of that meal prep stuff. Well, and also, like, if you are a single person, like, say you're someone living on your own. You live in a, like a smaller space. Yeah. Even if you are having these recipes. Yeah. Like it's still going to take up a lot of space. Yep. Anything else on that? Nope. How about taste? I gave it a 3.5. Okay. The dishes were tasty, but to me, they felt very middle of the road. Mm-hmm. I guess because it's the nature of it's supposed to be like fast, busy family meals, mm-hmm. which if you're not doing meal prep, it's not. Yeah. You lose a lot of the opportunity for flavor building. But that being said, we've worked from books that, you know, are like for fast, quick meals. And there have been things that we've made from those books where we're just like, oh, my God, that was fucking great. Yeah. And I didn't. There was nothing that we made that I was like, wow. How about you? I gave it a three. Okay. No new takes or unique flavors. The challenge becomes taking a beloved, familiar dish and maintaining those flavors. Inevitably, some diners are going to be disappointed, claiming that it just doesn't taste the same. Some items are going to be nearly impossible to replicate to people's satisfaction, and I think that's where the challenge comes in, especially when you're trying to replicate like any kind of bread or baked goods. Okay, can I say the fried chi- the photo of the fried chicken? I was like, I would never eat that. It I looked- will... I will do you one better. Enter that everything bagel into a baking competition and see how it fares. Oh, my gosh. If you didn't tell people specifically that it was gluten-free, they would think it was like the worst bagel ever. They'd be like, did you leave out the yeast? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the challenge is like when you're trying to create things like you said, like fried chicken, things like that. The Concord's flying above us right now. Right. We're going back to the 1990s. Yeah. We'll be in London by the end of the night. So plenty of time to go out. I think Um, it went from Paris to New York. Oh, yeah, you're right. Based on what we just discussed, is this a buy, borrow, or banish for you? I would borrow it. Okay. And then I'd probably be like, meh. And then I wouldn't buy it. Yeah. um, I mean, we've been experimenting quite a bit lately with uh, maybe books that aren't exclusively gluten-free, but certainly in that... In that uh, area, this one I think is worth borrowing and checking out, seeing if it's for you. I think for like some specific people, it might be a great book, especially if you are the type that likes to do like meal planning and Mm -hmm. meal prep for the week. For us, probably not our jam. 
just it's just not how we eat. It's not how we plan. Uh, you know, we're we're terrible planners for the for the week. Yeah, for our dinners. Okay, I think before we go to our gastro obscura section, okay. um, I want to talk about some of this Halloween stuff. So on the topic of Halloween and trick or treating, mm-hmm. I thought it might be worth just talking about like how some of these traditions came to be. And so I was, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird that like. How are all these little kids going around begging for free food? How did that come about? I love that you're raised to not take candy from strangers, yet every year (laughs) all the kids go to strangers' houses and beg for candy. And that's putting a tremendous amount of trust and faith in uh, someone not doing something purely evil. Yes. It could just give you like some fentanyl injected Tootsie Rolls or something. That is never going to happen. Over. That is oh, contraire. Especially, well, especially there's like a huge hype about people giving out weed gummies. Yes, that shit's expensive. No one is giving away the I'm weed not gummies. With my weed gummies no. for the neighborhood kids, and not not to mention like what kind of jerk would give drugs to a young child? I mean, crazy kids. There are serial killers. Uh, so <laughs> I see what you did there, serial. <laughs> All right, so uh, I found some information on history.com that I thought was was good. Okay. The tradition of trick-or-treating actually goes back to around the 1930s, early 1940s, when children were given everything from homemade cookies to pieces of cake to fruit, nuts, maybe some coins, maybe a small toy. It wasn't until the 1950s that candy manufacturers really began to get into the act and promote their products for Halloween as a way of trick-or-treating. Then eventually candy increasingly became the affordable, convenient offering for this activity. What was the best trick-or-treat candy that you ever got growing up? Anything that was a full-size bar. Oh, yeah. There was always like the one weird person that would do that. Yeah. And then you did like, you know, try and go back several times, (laughs) take your mask off, (laughs) go back in your street clothes, maybe have a whole second backup costume that you could throw on just to get that bar. Well, I mean, back in the day, like they there were like those weird plastic masks, like yes. <laughs> kooky, like well, there was kooky spooks which oh, yeah, had the that inflatable thing, and then there were like those horrible like plastic princess and Wonder Woman thing that had tiny little slits that you could barely breathe out of. Now, you want to talk a little bit about? We were kind of alluding to this earlier, but you know, this whole narrative that started where like there were people putting stuff in candy is largely a myth and there's very few actual incidents of that happening yeah in the 70s candy companies got wise and they started wrapping individual pieces Mm -hmm. of candy Mm -hmm. and it kind of became pretty much the only thing acceptable right Um, no more apples or uh right because there was there was such a panic that um parents feared that like real life boogeyman would tamper with their with any kind of goodies that weren't um store-bought and sealed right um and the actual incidents of this occurring are pretty rare very few however (laughs) okay so the first one was in 1964 some horrible woman named helen feel uh, was arrested for handing out things like ant poison and dog biscuits to okay, kids. Okay, what kid is going to take a dog biscuit from some crazy lady handing out 
these from her house. But a lot of times kids don't look and you'll just like drop, you know, like drop the candy into the bag. I have so many questions. Right. The, did she do something to obscure the fact that it was ant poison or did she just be like yeah, right? a package? I mean, did, go. did they ant come poison. in, did they come in little single serving sizes? I don't understand I mean, the that. The skull and crossbones should have been the dead giveaway. Right. So when questioned, this housewife said she was joking that she gave the items to the kids that she felt were too old to be trick or treating. Or the ones with no costume. Yeah. Every or, year you got those that show up. Oh the, yeah. The high school kids that just, show up in like pajama pants yep so no children were actually hurt but uh the cops were not very amused no (laughs) and then probably the most infamous halloween poisoning took place on halloween obviously 1974 (laughs) that's when a texas man named ronald o'brien gave cyanide laced pixie sticks to five children including his son The other children never ate the candy, but sadly, his eight-year-old son, Timothy, did and died soon after. Though nobody saw O'Brien put it the cyanide in the candy, investigators learned that he recently had taken out life insurance policies on his children and was convicted of murder and executed in 1984. Wasn't Pixie Cyanide the keyboardist in Marilyn Manson's band? (laughs) Sorry. Too soon? Never. Yeah. We never talk about Marilyn Manson around here. No, we do not. Um, So in another uh, tradition for Halloween, young women used to peel apples and throw the peels over their shoulders in the hopes that the peels would form the pattern of their future husband's initials, which is how you hooked up with me originally. Absolutely. It was the apple peels. (laughs) It spelled out my name. You knew it was fate. Anything else you got on Halloween traditions? Americans would also get together occasionally on Halloween for Nutcrack Night festivities. See, I participated in that, but it was something completely different. So do tell. (laughs) Um, So people ate freshly harvested hazelnuts and chestnuts. Uh, In some cases, a young man would assign names to each nut. He was naming nuts? (laughs) Stop naming nuts. (laughs) Walnut. Pine nut. (laughs) pistachio nut (laughs) anyway the one that burned the brightest in the fire could signify his future sweetheart and that was how i met you (laughs) (laughs) okay well i I named the walnut uh victoria and threw it in the fire and it burned the brightest that's when i knew you were the one for me great so it was a nut that i completely yeah strangely enough (laughs) It was fate, I tell you. It's going to tell you something about me. Okay, so that brings us to our gastro obscura section. Now, this is normally something that Victoria takes the reins on, but... uh, I'm being lazy. (laughs) Take the week off, Victoria. (laughs) I wanted to talk about the legend of Stingy Jack. This is from Celtic folklore, so it takes us to Ireland. So Irish immigrants are to thank for bringing the current tradition of carving pumpkins into jack-o'-lanterns to America. But originally, jack-o'-lanterns were not pumpkins. The ancient Celtic cultures in Ireland carved turnips, beets, or potatoes on All Hallows' Eve and uh, placed an ember in them to ward off evil spirits. And they would set these up like around their house, like on windowsills and stuff. And uh, Jack O'Lantern legend goes back hundreds of years in Irish history. Many of the stories center around Stingy Jack, 
And uh, he was a miserable old drunk who took pleasure in playing tricks on just about everyone, family, friends, his mother, even the devil himself. And the devil offered to buy Jack a drink at a local bar in exchange for his soul. And uh, Jack stole the coin from the devil, put it in his pocket and uh, took off. Years later, he ran into the devil by an apple tree. And the devil wanted to take his soul right then and there. But Stingy Jack <laughs> bought some time by asking the devil to climb up in a tree and get him an apple. You know, as you do. This like is, you're wanting to steal this, someone's this soul? This is a pretty weird legend. As soon as the devil was up in the tree, Stingy Jack trapped the devil by placing crosses in a circle around the tree. And that uh, left the devil stuck up there. Years later, Jack died and went to the pearly gates of heaven. He was told by St. Peter that he was mean and cruel and led a miserable, worthless life on earth. So he was not allowed in. So then he went to hell and talked to the devil and the devil kept his promise and would not allow him to enter because he, he still remembered that tree incident. I wonder how he got out. Right. Somehow he got out of the tree. Now Stingy Jack had nowhere to go but to wander around forever in the dark netherworld between heaven and hell. The devil tossed an ember of flame to him he took that put it in a turnip that he had carved <laughs> and placed it uh in his hand and walked around with this ember turnip thing uh the irish called the ghost of stingy jack jack of the lantern which was later abbreviated to jack-o-lantern now fast forward to the 1800s as waves of irish immigrants are coming to america they quickly discovered that pumpkins were bigger and easier to carve out than their uh, rutabagas and turnips. So that's how the practice of carving pumpkins came about. Okay. Right? All right. So if you enjoyed the show, please rank and review us. You can follow us on our socials. Uh, our Instagram is at we underscore cook underscore books. And our Facebook is at we cook books. I've got, I've got a joke that's going to tie this all together. Okay. All right. Anyone who thinks that onions are the only vegetable that makes you cry have never been hit in the face with a turnip. <laughs> and with that, I bid you good day. Sure. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe. Stay hungry. <laughs>